Amen. All right, go ahead and go to Romans chapter 5 tonight. Romans chapter 5, continuing our way through the book of Romans. We'll jump right into verse 1. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is always important, especially in the book of Romans, to remind yourself what was covered in the previous chapter because the new chapter often is kind of giving us a truth based off the truth from the previous chapter. It's kind of expounding on it more or or offering some clarification. It's all kind of building on each other. So what was chapter 4 all about? Well, chapters 1 through 3 was showing that man is sinful and cannot earn righteousness. And that is something you must cover when going through the plan of salvation. People need to realize that they are sinners. Uh, Obviously, in our culture... Um, that's not real hard for people to figure out. But in the Jewish culture, it was a lot harder. And Brother Jerry saw that the other day when he talked to two of them that said that they were doing just fine with the law and didn't have any sin. (laughs) And you know, we hear that. We're just like, what in the world? I mean, we laugh at that. We laugh at that. But they believe that. They they really do. So um, typically, we don't spend a lot of time or we don't need to spend a lot of time showing people that they're sinful but for some people, that is a necessity. And so Paul covered that very well. And then chapter 4 uh, is basically um, showing that, and it's as clear as it can possibly be, that righteousness is something that comes from those who believe on Christ and it's people who are trusting in Him specifically without adding works. And it can't be any more clear than the way it's just spelled out in Romans chapter 4. So we believe unto righteousness. And if you attempt to believe and work, then you will come short and you will not be saved. And if you can't grasp that, then that's where you need to go back and read chapters 1 through 3 again. Now, because understand too, while I say we don't normally need to spend a whole lot of time showing people that they're sinners, at the same time, if you're dealing with Catholics a lot of times, in a way you do. So, for example, Catholics, well, yeah, they know we're all sinners, right? But as far as them seeing themselves as bad enough to go to hell, you know, they don't see that. Or, or especially seeing themselves um, in need of salvation, you know, um, you know or, or thinking that you know, the, their works aren't helping. And the fact that they think their works are helping shows that they do not understand the law. They do not understand that if you're going to try to keep the law, you have to do the whole thing. They don't understand that. And so you might have to spend some time clarifying those things to uh, some people who are real hardcore about work salvation. But uh, Paul clearly is here is dealing with an aspect of salvation that is easy to take for granted here in chapter 5. What he's about to deal with this is easy for us to take for granted, but he's teaching the necessity of righteousness for the individual. It is true, if you are going to heaven, you must be righteous. He doesn't want you to get the wrong idea here. And when he's saying to him that worketh not, that righteousness isn't important. That it's not about the law, but that righteousness isn't important. No, just like every bit of the law is important, righteousness is very important. In fact, it's a necessity. In fact, if you don't have righteousness, you haven't got a chance of getting into heaven but he makes it very clear the way to righteousness is through Jesus Christ. But the necessity of righteousness 
is something that we don't want to take for granted. It's something that we need to understand because when you under, because just like we all get that our sinful condition reveals our need for a savior. But another thing that reveals our need for a savior is the necessity of righteousness. And that's what the Catholics and many work salvation people don't understand is it's like, okay, yeah, I get it that I need a savior because I'm sinful. But what they don't fully understand is, no, I must have righteousness. I must have total righteousness. And when you realize, no, I've got to achieve perfect righteousness, you know what else that does? That causes you to call on the Lord for salvation. Because you realize you can't do that on your own. So righteousness is a necessity. But our righteousness, we're going to see, it's based off one man, Jesus Christ. It's based off His righteousness. And so... Let's go ahead and read verse 1 again, but I'm going to show you a test here. I'm going to show you a test that you can use to check to see if somebody is teaching salvation right. This is a great test to show, uh, uh, use on people. But notice where it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that salvation is by faith and not the works of the law, it gives us peace. Okay? Now, people who are in turmoil about their salvation... That doesn't come from Christ. That doesn't come from faith. That comes with an attitude of works. That comes from those who uh, have this unknown level of repenting of sins that they think that they have to do. And that's why there are there are many people, even in Baptist churches, especially camp meeting Baptist churches and stuff, where people, they don't have peace when it comes to their salvation. They're constantly having doubts. Every year they got to get, you know, they get all emotionally manipulated. They come, they cry at an altar, just trying to get peace. And they have peace when they get all fired up and people are running glory laps and, you know, they heard a good story and they responded to it and they're crying. But within a month, they're right back to turmoil again. That right there, if, if people are in turmoil all the time about their salvation, it's probably because they've been taught wrong. It's probably because they are wrong on the gospel. When you understand justified by faith, and it's not just lip service. No, it's practiced through. Your doctrine is consistent with that. It's not just one that gives lip services. Catholics say that they they believe in being justified by faith. Martin Luther. People act like Martin Luther wrote the just shall live by faith. He kind of made that a famous verse in a lot of ways in in the Protestant world. But look how many Protestants don't believe the just shall live by faith. They're trusting in a work salvation. So everyone gives lip service to it, but is their doctrine consistent with that? And it's not. Our doctrine is consistent with that. No works. It's not about works. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about it's eternal security. It's faith. It's belief. It's not about repenting of sin. It's not about reformation. It's faith in Christ. And we have peace to the point makes a lot of people mad. You know why? Jealous. Jealous because they're, they're in turmoil and they should be in turmoil. With that doctrine, you're not going to get peace from that. So, uh, so if your doctrine is right, you'll be at peace. You're not going to be making professions all the time. And you cannot have peace if you believe your works are some kind of proof of your salvation. Because you'll feel good when you're doing good, but then you're going to be wondering when you're doing bad. So, that's just that's bad doctrine. Bad. Do- I want to get people living right and repenting of their sins as much as anybody. But... We, got, we cannot compromise what the gospel clearly says. That's not right, and we're not helping the cause by doing that. But verse 2, By whom we also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, 
We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we get in by grace, we stand in that grace. We don't claim works now. We don't claim works as proof now. You know why I'm still saved? Not because of my works, not because of the change in my life. Grace. We stand in grace. We're, we, we got saved by grace. We stand in grace. And you know what? We rejoice. Giving glory to God. We don't talk about ourselves. We talk about Jesus Christ. We rejoice in our salvation. Or, or in, where we, and we glory, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And, we, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. This passage right here debunks the prosperity gospel, which is foolish and just completely unbiblical. And sadly, many people, even saved people, often believe some form of prosperity gospel. And I don't want to preach about this, but they are always striving to be right with God so they will have an easy life. So they will have prosperity and everything will be easy street. But that is not how things work. Did you know if you serve God, chances are you're going to have difficulties you're going to have tribulations, persecutions. But here's, here's the thing about that, though. Okay? There's some truths to what these people say, while at the same time there's some mega lies in there, too. I do believe if you will practice the, these things, okay, you will go through difficult times, but I believe we're capable of being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the sense where they went through a fiery furnace and it didn't even singe a hair on them. They didn't even smell like smoke. And now some of us now under, so understand we're going to go, we go through tribulations, but if we have great faith, we can go through those things like nothing. And some people do. I am amazed at the battles and afflictions I have seen some Christians go through and it does not negatively affect their spirit. It does not negatively affect their joy. They continue serving the Lord. They continue being good Christians. They don't let those things get them down. You meet these people and you'd never know they had a trial in their life. Even though they've had major trials. And I have known Christians like that personally who have been through things that I can't even imagine, yet you can't smell the smoke on them. Well, at the same time, there's other saved people. They go through little things and they act like they just went through a fiery furnace. And they look like they just went through a fiery furnace. They're coming out scorched and burned and stinking like smoke. And so understand that, you know, glorying in tribulations and all these things that it builds, you know, that's what we need to be shooting for. Not a life where there's no battles, but we need to, we need to strive to have the kind of faith that when we go through battles, it does not take us off our game. It does not negatively affect us. That's what we ought to be shooting for. And that's probably a good message for another day, but that's not, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that tonight, but it. So if you serve God, you will have difficulties, but God will help you. And the greater your faith, the less those challenges will negatively affect you. Verse 5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And so we struggle relating to this too a lot of times because you know, we don't have the kind of persecution they had then, but you know, we do have some. We have people say stuff about us. You know, we have people that don't like us. You know, we, we get, we have light affliction. We've not resisted unto blood, but it still doesn't feel good. And considering, you know, we're in the Gen Z generation that can't handle anything. And I, I keep complaining about Gen Z and they deserve it. But at the same time, you know, uh, considering the fact that every little thing is taking people out their game today, you know, the truth is 
if we can be an example and not let these things take us off our game, not let them mess us up. You know, we can be a help to these people and hopefully be an inspiration and teach them how to have faith too. So for then, verse 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And listen, while there is so much that a false prophet can say about us and say about our sin that is true, you know what? There's nothing that he should be able to say about our sins, no matter how true, that takes away the peace that we have. Because when we see how far God went to save us, it should prove to us he has the love and willingness to forgive our trespasses and he has the ability. You know why he can forgive us? Because the blood of Christ cleanses all sins. You know why he can forgive us? Because that sacrifice was a good sacrifice. And a just and a loving God uh, and a holy and a righteous God can forgive sins because what Jesus did was enough. And to challenge that is to challenge the effectiveness of the blood of Christ. And so understand, He can forgive us. He will forgive us. He has the ability to cleanse all unrighteousness. And the fact that He did it for sinners. Again, there's a lot of people that we would die for and that we would even be expected to die for. I think any, any man, any real man, he is expected to lay down his life for his wife and to lay down his wife for his children. And we are often impressed, and rightfully so, when people lay down their lives for strangers, when they risk their life, when firemen or police officers, when they put themselves in a dangerous situation. We commend those people for that. But to do something for a sinner, for a holy person to do that for a sinner, that is beyond anything that we can really comprehend. And that's, you know what, I'm planning on preaching a message soon about just all the things that we believe that we can't comprehend, that we can't fully understand. There's a lot of things like that. And let me tell you, the love of God, His forgiveness, grace, mercy, these things are beyond our comprehension. But you know what? All of these things I'm going to talk about too are wonderful things to talk about, to discuss, to ponder, meditate on. These are good things. And we ought to take the time to think about that sometimes. Just what a, you know, what a big deal it was that a righteous God would send His righteous Son to pay for sinful man. We ought, we ought to think about that more than we should. And so when people point out your sin, you know what you need to do? You need to point out Christ's sacrifice. Because that's, that's good enough payment right there. And so it's kind of like, have you ever seen it on shows before too? Um, you know, whenever somebody maybe pays for something, they go and they, they buy something and then there's maybe a question of payment or something and then they'll just like throw a bunch of gold or something. You know, maybe that, that cowboy, he goes and buys a drink and it's like, you know, yeah, and he just like, and you don't even, and it's like, it's clear what they just put down is more than enough to cover it. It's like a tip and then, then some. And that's kind of how it is, you know, with our sin. It's like we've got our sin that people can bring up, but then that payment of the blood of Christ, we ought to look at that and think, yeah, it's covered. Yeah, it's good. No, no need to ask any questions. You don't, no need to count it up. It for sure is sufficient. That's how we ought to look at the blood of Christ. And so verse 9 <clears throat> says, 
Oh, and another thing I want to do too, because I know when you cover these things, the objections that come up. Well, you're just trying to give people an excuse to sin. You know what? And Paul's going to deal with that in the very next chapter. Okay, he's going to deal with that in the very next chapter. We're not going to take, but the first verse of Romans chapter six, because again, you know there are honest questions people come up with when you're saying no works or eternal security. You know, it is natural to think, well, then, good night. I guess if you're saved, then you can just go do whatever you want to do, right? And and so he covers that in chapter six. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So, they had the same objections back then. And we're going to get to that next week. So, uh, those who maybe are on the fence and could, might be listening to this, don't worry. Paul's going to cover all your objections. He's covering all the bases in Romans. Covering, covering all the bases. So, verse 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we should be saved from wrath through Him. So, justified by His blood. That blood, that's payment. That's good. There's enough. And again, have you ever seen that that kid before? I heard I heard a story about a preacher one time that whenever he would go out to eat with other preachers, he would just sometimes stand there holding a dollar, looking at the dollar, looking at the menu, looking at the dollar, looking at the menu. And it was like he would do that until somebody would say, hey, can I get your meal for you? And that was just like kind of a, a tricky thing he would do. Have you ever seen that with a little kid before too? Maybe you're at a concession stand or something, a little kid is like wanting to buy something and it's it's clear they don't have enough. And again, the, the blood of Christ, it is just, we should see it as just like this payment that is just so far above and beyond anything that could be needed. We cannot talk enough and say enough good about the blood of Christ. And I think it's interesting too that a lot of modern versions remove a lot of verses or references to the blood of Christ. But you know what? The old timers, they understood the significance before the John MacArthur's and people came along. And you know what? We've got a lot of hymns about blood in our songbooks. And rightfully so, because they, they did. The old timers understood the significance of the blood of Christ. And unfortunately, because we don't talk about these things, because we don't talk about sacrifices that much, because we're not under that system, because of that, we often just, we don't, we, we're not programmed like we should be with that effectiveness of the blood of Christ. And, but it is, it's a powerful thing. It is a necessary thing. It's the only thing that can cleanse sin. And I think if we did a better job of you know, explaining the blood to the world, if they understood the significance of that blood atonement and of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it would make people less likely to think that they can do anything on their own to save themselves or contribute to that or that they need anything in addition to the blood of Christ. So, um, there's so many, there, I mean, this chapter is so rich that I just, now I want to preach a sermon about the blood and just talk about the blood for a long time. Even though I get accused of teaching a hell atonement, which I do not. I believe in a blood atonement. I believe in a blood atonement just as much as anybody who tries to deny the death. And I don't deny the death. Well, I don't teach a hell atonement, so shut up. But anyway... If, you, if, you, if, they, if they can straw man me, I can straw man them, all right? So anyway, the only justification we have before God is the blood of Christ. Now, for man, for man to be justified before them, we talked about this last week, we need works. But understand, we're not going to stand before man on judgment day. But if we want man to receive our message, then we need to justify ourselves to them so we will not be cast away like Paul talked about. 
We don't want to be offensive to people. It is very effective and very important that we do good as Christians because you know it's, it's important that we maintain good works because they are good and profitable for men. So let, um, we can preach a whole message about the importance of good works after you get saved. So verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, for those who really enjoy hating the enemies of God, let me help you real quick with the hate doctrine, okay? Let me, let me help you all with this. Because those obsessed with hating are often quick to remind you that it is okay to hate the enemies of God because they're reprobate. In Psalm 139, do not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and so on. And don't get me wrong. There is a time to hate, but like David said in Psalms 139, after he said, do not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, what did he do after that? He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my way. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why did he say that? You know why? Because hate is a very dangerous thing. And typically, our hatred is not motivated by a love for God. It's motivated by a hatred for whatever we don't like and a love for our own flesh. It is a work of the flesh. It is, it is something our flesh is very prone to do. So just understand the enemy of God label. Okay? And that's what we do. I want to hate somebody. They're enemy of God. Well, hang on. The enemy of God label alone, it's not enough to just decide to hate someone. Okay? Because Paul said that, um, he said later that the Jews, they were enemies of the gospel. While teaching, they could still be saved. So, obviously, just being an enemy of God or enemy of the gospel is not an excuse to hate somebody. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he was an enemy to the church at one time. He persecuted the church at one time. In fact, if some of us would have been living back in Paul's day, we'd have been preaching messages about him and how we're going to pray he dies a slow and painful death and he melts like a snail. That's what, we, that's what we'd have been praying about Paul back then. So, understand, this passage... It, 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 this. This passage does prove we just we can't just hate anyone, including the enemies of God. But it, it doesn't prove we can't hate anybody. But it does. It just proves the enemies of God label is not justification. They do need to be bona fide reprobates, and not necessarily everyone that's an enemy. It says when we were enemies. It says in First Timothy one twelve. You say, well, what's the difference? First Timothy one twelve. What's the difference? It says. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. This is Paul. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. That's the difference between a reprobate and somebody like Paul. The reprobate knew the truth and rejected it. And they rejected it probably more than once. And it came to a point when God gave them over to that, okay? Now, just because they rejected the truth from you when you were foaming at the mouth doesn't mean that they have now become reprobate, okay? God decides when somebody becomes reprobate. But uh, understand, you know, I, I, I think what it comes down to, common sense, okay? Common sense agrees with the Bible. And it says in there, there's a time to love and a time to hate. There are plenty of situations where something is wrong with you if you don't hate someone or something, if you don't hate a child molester, what is wrong with you? Everybody hates child molesters except for the rainbow crowd. I mean, you know, everybody hates them. 
But listen, you're also weird if you're just anxious to hate someone and looking, studying your Bible, trying to figure out, all right, who can I hate? Do, do you need to do that? I think we just naturally, instinctively know who we're supposed to hate. And obviously, Bill Gates, you know, Anthony Fauci, Hillary. You know, I mean, I mean you know, obviously, you know, it's just, it's common sense prevails. I don't, I don't, I, and the thing, I don't need to study my Bible to try to figure out who I'm supposed to hate. I think if you are just a decent, loving, moral person, you will naturally be able to figure that out. But I think it's foolish to just try to find a label to put on somebody. You know, that way we can hate them. So it's like, oh, wait, that person, they're an A. Oh, good. I can hate them. <clears throat> you know, it's like, listen, hate takes a lot of energy and negative emotion and stuff. I'm not looking for people to hate. Y'all understand that? I, I, you know, I, don't, I don't need to do a new study on who all I'm supposed to hate and then go figure out who all those people are so I can waste a bunch of energy thinking about them. You know, when it comes to most people that we're probably supposed to hate, I'd prefer to just not think about them. I'd prefer to forget they exist. Now, you say, well, why did you mention those one people? Because the news media is always shoving them in our face. We're hearing about them all the time. They're destroying our country, destroying our state. J.B. Pritzker, you know, and, and you, hey, if you, think I'm, if you think I'm terrible for hating him, you know, pray for me, all right? Pray that I get my heart right, because I do. <laughs> and, I, and I don't feel bad about it. I'm not convicted. I'm not convicted about that. And, uh, and so, and it has nothing to do with him being a Jew. It has nothing, I, I don't know if he's a sodomite or anything like that. I know his brother is. Uh, it's just, he's a horrible person who loves to kill babies, who is opening everything in our state to, uh, you know, make it where people from other states can come and slaughter their babies over here, making sure this is a safe space for trannies and all that kind of stuff. Why in the world would I have any positive feelings towards a horrible monster like that? It doesn't make, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So again, it's, it's not enough to just put that enemy of God label. Um, just, you know, just, just chill out. All right. Just, you know, chill out with, with hating on people. You'll know when you're supposed to, if you're just a decent person. But if you're not a decent person, you're just probably going to hate a whole bunch of people. You're going to have whole groups and you're going to probably sometimes hate the wrong people. So just, just be a decent person and you'll do just fine when it comes to that, as, as I'll call it, the hate doctrine. So verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. So back to the main subject, we also have joy as a result of the atonement that we have received. We understand the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. It was a good sacrifice. It's something that we can rejoice in. And so, a reminder of what we said before, too, when somebody talks about salvation, they should be talking about Jesus, not themselves. And beware of those who talk more about themselves than Jesus when discussing salvation. That's what we do when we go out door knocking. How do you know you're going to save? If they talk about themselves... That's a problem. If they talk about Jesus, that's a good sign. And let me tell you, there's a lot of garbage preachers out there who are known, who brag about... And, I, and I'm not, I'm not going to quote one individual because I don't want to assume the worst by what he said. And you, know, you could take this multiple ways. But I, I, I know of one preacher who brags about the thousands and thousands of people who have gotten saved, as he puts it, 
from his testimony. Okay, now that sounds really bad. Okay? Now, I, I don't want to assume the worst about what he says, but people are saved by the gospel. You know whose testimony that is? Jesus' testimony. Okay, now, to be kind, if your story that you tell helps get the attention of people so you can go to the story of Jesus Christ, you know, maybe if it illustrates and, and it's a great, you know, uh, picture of, you know, the gospel and what it does for people, I'm not saying, you know, that it can't be effective to a certain extent. But you know what? Don't ever say it that way. Don't ever say it that way. Nobody gets saved because of your testimony. They get saved because of Jesus' testimony. They get saved by the gospel. Now, you know, in my opinion, I, you know, again, I do think the worst that I'm assuming about this individual is probably correct because you want to talk about somebody who is all over the place on repentance and goofy on repentance. It's this guy. But again, uh, I, it's one of these things before I'd call him out on something like this, I would want to ask him first because that sounds terrible. Please do not say that. I think I did ask him about it one time. I've asked him a couple questions before, but then he blocked me. So... It could be a sign that he doesn't have a good answer. But anyway, uh, yeah, but beware of people like that. So this next passage we're going we're gonna to go to is one that is used to teach the doctrine of original sin. I, I don't know how many are familiar with the doctrine of original sin. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this. I'll probably say more when we get to chapter 7 because according to my understanding of the doctrine of original sin, you know, I'll say there's a lot of true things that people say about this doctrine, but like Calvinists often do, they make a true statement and then they jump to a false conclusion based on that truth. And there's a lot of foolishness. There is a lot of heresy that comes with and that is backed up by the teaching of original sin. For example, baptizing babies. Um, they One of the reasons they use that is because they're saying that that can kind of wash away that original sin that comes from Adam. That's what Catholics will say. Um, I don't know that every you know all the Protestants say that same thing, but I'll probably say more about that in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter seven because I believe the answer is there. But often Calvinists too will teach that unelect babies will go to hell because they are guilty of original sin or the sin. Of Adam, but I believe that will be proven false when we get to Romans chapter seven, and, and Romans five for sure is not teaching this concept. It's not doing that. that this is not here. And what 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 I believe has happened because I've read some different confessions on original sin. Uh, the one that you know, uh, some people act like it should be in the Bible is the Westminster Confession, and it's often very vague in its Calvinism and how it's described, and it's pretty vague in its definition of original sin. And so you can take the Westminster Confession, what it says about original sin, and you can make it line up with the Bible. But Calvinists will often take it, though, and then they twist it into the really bad heresies, like about unelect babies going to hell and stuff like that. And I don't, I don't want to get too sidetracked on that. But let's go through this passage and see what's actually being taught and what we're supposed to get from it. So verse 12, Wherefore... As by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And it is 100% true that one man, Adam, brought death into the world, 
and we have all inherited sin and death from Adam. You want to know why 100% of us have sinned before? Because of Adam. We inherited that sin nature from us. You want to know why 100% of people have died except for those still currently living? And the two exceptions of Elijah and Enoch? Because of Adam. Death passed on all of them. And so we have, we have inherited sin and death from one man. Now, this does not mean we do not have a choice. The Calvinists will just jump to that conclusion. Okay, we do have a choice. It's just that everyone who has ever lived has always chosen sin except for the one that was born of a virgin. Except for the one that was the son of God and not a son of Adam. He is the only one that ever uh, that never chose sin. That's it. But the rest of us have, and all of you eventually will. Ever, and, and let me just say this. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to cover this when we get to Romans chapter 7. But every single person at some point in their life, they are going to come to a place, every one of these little children here, I believe they are in a state of innocence when they're young. But the day is going to come where they are going to fully understand right and wrong. And they're, they're going to understand sin and they are going to rebel against God and they are going to sin. I promise. I don't care how sweet some of these kids look. Okay? Some of these kids are pretty sweet and innocent. Amos there, he, he seems like a really good kid. He's just got a good attitude all the time. But I promise the sin nature is going to show up one day. And his parents have probably already seen it plenty of times. You all have already seen it in Hannah. Okay. I, mean, that, I mean, that girl proves the point, point right there. And I've heard some people say, you know, kids aren't inherently evil and all that stuff. It's like, you haven't seen my kids. Okay. I mean, man, they, sin nature shows itself. You don't have to teach them how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to sin. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish. You have to teach them not to do any of those things. It is in all of us. But And, and understand, the day is going to come where they will understand and they will sin and they will die spiritually. And you know what? They are going to need to be saved. And if they do not get saved, they will go to hell. And so... Uh, boy, that's just another reason. Keep your kid in church. Keep your kid around the Bible and around the gospel. Let them get it young. And they can get it young. They're more likely to get it young. And thank God when that happens. So verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, what exactly does this mean right here? Is it saying that nobody was credited for sin before the law? And that's what a lot of people will kind of believe too. It's like, well, before the law came, you know, they sin wasn't imputed. Therefore, all the people that died were dying because of Adam's sin. And there's some truth to what they're saying there, but there's, there's actually a little more to it that I think it's kind of hard for us to comprehend. Again, because we were never under the law. We didn't live back in those days. We have no idea what it was like, not only in the Old Testament, but we really have no idea what it was like before the law came. We have no idea. But let me... Uh, let me point out a couple of passages to you. I just had somebody ask me about this the other day and it kind of goes along with what I'm talking about. But Acts 14, verse 15, saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. So he's referring specifically to the idolatry and stuff that's going on. And he said there was a time when God suffered or allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. 
Does that mean idolatry was okay before the law came? Not necessarily. It also says in Acts 17.29, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone engraven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Again, talking about idolatry, there was a time God didn't like it. God never liked idolatry, but He winked at it. It's kind of like, you know, it, uh, you could say he, he winced at it. it. It caused him to cringe. It bothered him. But what it's saying here, he didn't bring the hammer down on those nations during that day because they really didn't know any better. It was still wrong. But he didn't bring the hammer down on them. And before the law came, understand there was still sin. There were things they weren't supposed to do. But we don't see God holding people as accountable then as he does today. Idolatry was always wrong. But God didn't bring the hammer down on him then like he does now. And this is why in the Old Testament we see good men do many things that are really bad, yet God didn't seem mad at them. So for example, how about Abraham? You realize the man that God chose, Abraham, was from an idolatrous people? Folks, we even see Rachel, Jacob's wife, with idols in Genesis. We see Abraham married his half-sister. Do you know the law forbid that? But the law hadn't been given yet. So did God not care then? No, it just wasn't imputed because that law hadn't been given yet. You know, David and Solomon and their many wives that they had. I mean, one thing after, one thing after another. We see that Reuben lost the birthright because of what he did with his father's concubine. We see Simeon and Levi, they didn't receive the birthright because of what they did in destroying the, the city after their sister was defiled. And so then we see it going to Judah. But Judah went and lay with a harlot that was actually his daughter-in-law, which was also forbidden. Of course, he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law, but that was pretty bad too. How come he didn't get in a bunch of trouble for that? You know, and again, I mean, it's, they were pretty bad back in those days. But God didn't necessarily bring the hammer down on them, but they were still sinful. They were still wrong. And these people all eventually died, didn't they? They all still eventually died And so verse 14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned at this multitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So even though God wasn't holding people accountable for the law that hadn't been given yet, men still died as sinners, even though they hadn't ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know why? Because that sin that came from Adam. So again, there's some truth to what people are saying about Adam's sin passing on man. That is true. Death did come from Adam. But it doesn't change the fact that all of us are still going to make a choice at some part in our life. And so that's where the Calvinists go wrong. They'll say all these things that are true, but they just jump to this false conclusion and, then just, and they'll use that to assume babies can go to hell because of original sin. No, I, I don't believe that, and I believe there's plenty of biblical precedent for that. I'll probably uh, hopefully cover that when I get to Romans chapter 7. So even though God wasn't holding people accountable for that law, they still died as sinners. And so we need to understand, there were, there, and this is something we forget too, there were laws before the law. For example, there were clean and unclean animals on Noah's ark. God told them to get seven clean beasts. 
how did he do that when the Leviticus hadn't been written yet? You know why? Because God had given them some things. You know, the death penalty for murder was the death penalty for murder was around after the flood. Did you know it was around even before the flood? Remember what Cain said after he killed his brother? Everyone that finds me will slay me. Why? Because if you kill somebody, you should get the death penalty. So just because that law hadn't been given yet didn't mean there weren't any laws. Obviously, there were some. We don't know what all they had back then, what all was going on, but we can see things mentioned in the book of Genesis. So uh, some of this is just you know dispensational foolishness that's thrown people off. But another way you can look at things too, you know, I think we would all agree that fornication is always a sin, no matter what. But at the same time, the consequences would be greater for someone who is raised right, taught the truth, and someone who has just not been taught anything. I mean, folks, what do we expect is going to happen with teenagers in this day and age we're living in? No morality being taught. I mean, we're just thrilled anymore if they're heterosexual. But it's still wrong. It's still wrong. We have There's a lot of couples, decent people, respectable people, I'm saying as far as society is concerned, that they shack up before they get married. That's wicked. That is wrong. That is against God's Word. But that's the culture that we live in. And, the, and there are consequences as a result of these things. But folks, who do we think is going to get in more trouble with God? Somebody who grew up in this church and has been taught right and someone who grew up not ever being taught the Word of God. Obviously, it's going to be worse. You know why? Because we have received these things. And so, um, you know, and don't, don't get me wrong, lost people, ignorant people, they have problems as a result of their shacking up. I, I remember back in the day, I used to watch Judge Judy all the time. And I noticed that it seemed like a big chunk of the cases that were on there, Judge Judy, People's Court, Judge Watner. Anybody remember Judge Watner? That was way back in the day. Okay. It seemed like a big chunk of those cases were couples that were shacking up. And so it was very confusing when people who had been living like they were married are all of a sudden now separating and there's all these questions about, you know, who, you know, what belongs to who, you know, who owed money for rent, all those kind of things. And I'm just like, you know, this is one of the reasons we have marriage. It helps things legally. You know, when it comes to a lot of these things, but it's just confusion when they're just shacking up like animals. So, back to the main point, though, that Paul's trying to make from this. While some of what was said might be confusing because we didn't live back in those days, here's something that's not confusing at all. This is, this is ultimately what Paul's trying to get across, okay? People are trying to pull out this, you know, their excuse for their demented version of the original sin doctrine, excuse for baptizing babies. Teaching on elect babies can go to hell and all that kind of stuff. But here's let's let's look at a passage that isn't confusing at all. Because there's something very specific Paul's trying to teach from this passage that people are ignoring. But verse 15 says, I need to hurry up. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now listen, if you all after church, you want to have a big debate about what all happened to people before the law, how much they were held accountable for, all that kind of stuff, be my guest, have at it. You know, we can agree to disagree on those things because at the end of the day, they're all dead and it doesn't matter. Here's what Paul is trying to teach. Just like one man brought sin and death into the world, one man brings righteousness. Oh, and by the way, it's free. Oh, and by the way, it's the gift of righteousness. Oh, by the way, it's a free gift. By the way, it's an abundance of grace. And I, I, I think it's good in your Bible to just underline in that passage, free, the gift, the free gift, abundance of grace and gift of righteousness, the free gift. Just in case anybody's wondering how much it costs. This is not a, uh, this is not free like it is in advertisements at the store. Nothing is free on advertisements. Okay? When I get an ad or an email for something for free, I typically delete it because it's never really free. It, ne- it never is. But this is free. So the main point is that if all can die because of one man's sins, then all can be made righteous by one man's righteousness. We can have eternal life. And so again, what did you do to cause death to come on you? Nothing. Adam did it. So what did you do to cause eternal life to come on you? Nothing. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Now, let's not jump to false conclusion like Calvinists or work salvation people because what was just said does not remove faith from the equation. It is true. We did nothing to save ourselves. We did nothing. We had no part in the work of salvation. Jesus did it all. I will agree with the Calvinists. I have heard some Calvinists very eloquently put into words how Jesus did it all, how we did nothing because the work is His work. The work was done on the cross. The work is finished. We did no works. I agree. I'll agree with the Calvinists all day long, but it doesn't change the fact that faith is required from us We've already established in Romans 4, righteous comes on him who worketh not but believeth. And now let, and, and we're not going to take time to go back and look at this again. But again, look at all the free gift, gift of grace. And then, um, but let's go ahead and look at some verses just on faith that we've seen so far. Okay? Just because when somebody acts like you having faith gives you a reason to boast, they're just making things up. Like, when, and, you know, people who act like faith is a work. Okay, that you're, you're just making things up. It doesn't make sense. There is no logical sense into boasting over something you put your faith in. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing to brag about there. And if you think you can, you're just making things up. But Romans 1.17 says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans 3.22 Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Verse 25, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Verse 27, Where is boasting then is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And it says it again in Romans 3, 30, 31, Romans 4, 5, 9, 11, 13. I don't even have time to go through all of these. 16. And then in Romans 5, 
Verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. By, by whom also we have access, by faith, into the grace wherein we stand rejoicing in hope and the glory of God. So just because Jesus did all of the works, just because we do no works, does not mean we shouldn't have faith. Faith is not a work. It's not a work. And when you put your faith in something, it's nothing to brag about. It's nothing to boast about. And it doesn't make sense when people are claiming that you can boast. And it is. It's like the Calvinists. You always have these people who want to be the most hardcore about no works. And so you have the goofballs that act like calling on the Lord is a work. But then you have the Calvinists who take it just a step further. And no, even you having faith, even you believing is a work. God gives you faith and gives you belief. And, and you know, that statement's not completely false either because did God not do plenty to cause us to have faith? I mean, the Word of God is what, you know, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So there's some truth to that. But again, they're jumping to the conclusion that means you don't have a choice or that you can't reject because they have their irresistible grace doctrine, which is also stupid. So uh, just, you know, it, it, it's, it's insane some of the things people come up with. So verse 20 goes on to say, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So the law was a good thing, even though the law only brought more condemnation. Because here's the thing, it brought more condemnation, but oh well, because death was already on all men. But what the law did, the law, it helped us to see that condemnation. It helped us to see how sinful we are. It was given so we might become exceeding sinful because one must recognize their sinfulness if they are going to be saved. And so the fact that the law brought more condemnation, it did not negatively affect us in any way. Because even though the law brought more guilt, even though that means, you know, did you know because of the law that, you know, we're going to go to, you know, people who are lost are going to go to hell for more things than they did before the law. But it doesn't matter. They're still going to hell. So the truth is, even though it brought more condemnation, even though it brought more guilt, grace made the difference. That's what it's saying right there. Because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So not only did grace make up for it and abound, but it did it even more than our sin. And that's why we sing songs too, like grace greater than our sin. Oh man, just look, look at all these laws. I've broken so many of these things. Well, good. I'm glad you see that. You've got the first step down. You understand you're a sinner. Now you just need to understand your need for a Savior. And, and it's like, yeah, but I've done a lot of things. I'm, I, the, more I, the more I read, the more I see that I've done. But you know what? Where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. The blood of Christ covers it. The blood of Christ is sufficient payment. You don't know what kind of bill I've racked up. You don't realize how good a payment the blood is. The blood covers it all. So verse 21, that as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And folks, this is another, I mean, crystal clear eternal security passage. Just like sin reigned unto death. Okay, and understand, if you have sin, okay, death is, death is on you. But notice, it says grace reigned through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So those who have believed, those who 
I have lived or lived by faith and have put their faith in Jesus Christ, grace becomes the new king. Grace is now reigning, and it not only reigns, but it reigns in righteousness through Jesus Christ. Grace right now in my life, in your life, if you're saved, it is reigning in righteousness. You are righteous. You are righteous. How? Through Jesus Christ. Yeah, but I did this. Grace. I did, I did a lot of it. Grace is much more about. Blood of Christ has co- covered it. And, and so what Paul is doing in this chapter, he's continuing to explain, he's continuing this explaining how salvation can be without works. He showed earlier how all are guilty of the law because all of it has to be kept if righteousness is by the law. But here he is showing that righteousness can be obtained. But it can only be obtained through Christ and it has to be by believing and not by us corrupting the atonement by adding our works to it. You cannot do that. You cannot mix anything with the blood of Christ. That's not, that, that, would, that would corrupt it. It's got to be faith in His blood. And we should never, ever, just like we emphasize the sinfulness of man, we need to emphasize the necessity of righteousness for someone to go to heaven. God doesn't let sinful people go to heaven. He lets righteous people go to heaven. How do I be righteous? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him. Get under the blood. Get cleansed. And, and we need to make sure we emphasize righteousness can't come from your performance of the law, but of Jesus Christ. The best Christian you know is not performing the law in a way that is sufficient to a holy God. But you know, here's what we are capable of doing. And he'll, and he'll talk about this later. Because you know, we're not trying to get people to add to just don't even worry about it. Go sin all you want. No, what we, what we can do is we can, we can do our best from the heart motivated by a love for God. And understand, I do believe when we do that, because we have a high priest who's been touched with the feeling of our infirmities, he will see that, he will recognize that. And even though on our best day, it's a pretty sorry thing. It's pretty pathetic. It's like if I wanted, you know, Da Vinci art, and then, you know, but then some little kid comes and brings me scribbles. And that's what our works are like. But, you know, often we will accept the scribbles from our little children because we understand they did their best and it came from a love for their mom and dad. And so it means something. It means something to us. And that's what our works are. Our works are pretty pathetic. But when, but God is able to see if we did our best, if we did it out of love. And you know what? He can accept it because of the fact that he's our high priest and he covers all of our shortcomings. And so Romans 1 through 5, I mean, just laying out everything we believe and teach about salvation in such a clear way. And so hopefully uh, this will get you a little more excited about the blood of Christ and, and again, and, and bring peace. The more you learn about salvation, the more peace you have. I'm not going to have peace if I accept perseverance of the saints as the Calvinists teach. That, that is not going to bring me peace because I don't have a whole lot of confidence in this flesh, ladies and gentlemen. I, I don't. But I do believe in perseverance of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, I have peace. I'm not, and, I'm, and I'm not worried about, uh, I don't need to worry about what I'm going to do. 
So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the blood. We thank you for uh, the just the, the gift of righteousness that we have. And uh, Lord, when we read this passage, uh, it's crystal clear. We do have absolutely nothing to brag about. But at the same time, uh, you say in your word, we rejoice. Uh, we can glory in these things. We can have peace. We can have joy and happiness. And so we do. We thank you so much for it. And I pray, I hope everyone here to enjoy the salvation they have. Help them uh, to be able to just be at peace when it comes to these things. And I pray, Lord, that the peace and joy that has come from what you've already done for us will motivate us to strive to do our best for you and to uh, love you and please you to the best of our ability. In your name we pray. Amen.